So when I chose to get in the car one day and uh, drive up the mountain and scatter his ashes around a lake that he loves, it was a beautiful time. And it did bring me a sense of closure. Uh, and I remember um, holding them in my hands and, and scattering them in the sand. And then I got in the car and I turned on the music and I rolled down the window right before I drove away and I, and I thanked him. And I said, it's been good. And now I have to live. Welcome back friends to the Aching Joy podcast. I'm your host, Jason Haig. And today I have the distinct honor of welcoming my friend, Trisha Lott Williford onto the podcast. She's gonna be sharing her story of hope in the midst of pain. And you guys, it's awesome. Trisha is the New York Times bestselling author of And Life Comes Back, Let's Pretend We're Normal, You Can Do This, and most recently, Just You Wait. And she's recently gone viral, too, with this beautiful letter to teachers during the quarantine. She's fantastic. Um, so here she is, my good friend, Trisha Lott Williford. Thank you, Trisha, so much for coming on. Jason, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm so glad to be here with you. Well, I am honored that you would come on because I, um, first of all, I, you know, you know how I feel about your writing. I love your writing, uh, and I wasn't introduced to it until I was in the the process of publishing my book, mm -hmm. and I didn't really know very many people um, to to endorse it. And uh, we we have the same publisher, and we work with the same editor, mm -hmm. Caitlin Carlson. So she sent my book to you and you read it. And I, so I didn't meet you until I saw your endorsement. And I, I like, I totally teared up, not because you said something incredibly nice, but because you summed up the whole message of my book in one sentence. And, and I was, I, I will forever remember what that endorsement was because I named you the modern day psalmist. <laughs> so that was like, that was awesome. Like I, I thought I can't even think of of a better compliment that I would ever hope for than mm -hmm. that. But it was what you said after that, that God's able to hold, that he's big enough to hold every emotion that we feel. Yeah. And I, I thought that came out of experience. Mm. So you, you knew what I was getting at because you had lived through it on a totally different level in this incredible story. And then I was able to read your story and realize, oh, this is why we had such affinity instantly, because you had been to these really dark places. Yes. I remember at least the heart of the endorsement, if I don't remember it word for word, but I remember saying that you show us as a modern day psalmist that we can bring all of our emotions before a sovereign God. Right. And that he right. can hold all of those pieces. And so your writing yeah. absolutely resonated with my soul because I... It's so beautiful to read the work of someone who has been there and wrestled with it and has allowed all of those pieces. You went through something incredibly hard and sort of unfathomable um, for, for most of us um, when you, uh, you lost your husband almost 10 years ago now. Yeah. Um, can, you, can you tell us a little bit about, about Rob and about that, uh, that horrible stretch in 2010? I can. Uh, it's so tender to talk about him. I, I love that man. We were babies when we got married. So we grew up together in a lot of ways. And we moved across the country and created our home in Colorado. And we had two boys. <clears throat> we had two boys, Tucker and then Tyler. 
And um, then our story got really sad, really fast. And um, Rob was sick for just 12 hours and the doctors thought that he had the flu. And he did have the flu, but it was masking sepsis, which is an infection in his bloodstream that attacked his heart and his lungs. They sent us home from the hospital and they said, he won't die from this, but he's gonna feel like it. He died the next morning and it was two days before Christmas. And I was 31 years old and our sons were five and three. And I was suddenly a widowed single mom of two preschoolers who were not yet in kindergarten, who were now fatherless. And the bottom fell out of my world, Jason. And uh, I entered into a season that I, I recall being two years of winter. And it plunged me into this place of severe PTSD. I was forever having flashbacks and I was um, in, in my waking hours, I was caring for my sons and my own grief in this lifeboat that was just big enough for the three of us. And in my sleeping hours, I was saving Rob over and over and over again in my sleep and watching him die again and again and again. And so there was no rest for my spirit. There was no rest for my soul. And uh, a pastor mentor who was helping me through this at the time said, Trisha, if this had happened to your body, this trauma, if this were a physical trauma, then you would be in the ICU and you'd be there for weeks. And no one would disagree with that. Everyone would say that that's where you belonged and that's where you should be and you should be sleeping. And so that kind of trauma has happened to your head and your heart and your mind and your soul. And so you've got to allow the time and space that your body is going to need in this trauma to figure out how to live this life. Did you, did you hear a lot about trauma growing up or, cause this is something that I'm just hearing more about over the last little stretch of time and growing up, I grew up very much in the Bible belt. And so it was sort of like, if something bad happens, well, just pray. Right. And, and like we're completely discounting these mm -hmm. very real physiological and psychological issues that come out of it. Um, it so was that a new uh, thought to you that, oh my goodness, there is a physical component? Oh yeah, absolutely. It was brand new to me. Um, not only did I live in the same kind of childhood that you talked about, but it was also a good childhood. So I also was not equipped with um, oh, when this happened to me before, I, I knew how to, I know how to address this, or I know what skills to fall back on. I did not have that. Now, I had a great team, and I had several pastors who walked intimately and closely alongside me, and also a therapist, who I still, still see every week, almost 10 years later, um, who I say is worth her weight in gold and lattes, because she has saved my life. Um, but no, I did not know um, the nature of trauma or the physical link between emotional output and physical toll um, and the exhaustion that comes with that. I didn't. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think, I, yeah, oh, it's absolutely real. And I, I'm excited to see more people talking about this type of issue in the church because for so long there was a stigma that if you are struggling or if you like well you're still mourning i you know we have a friend who mm. um who had a, a terrible situation and, and uh lost lost a child at birth and mm. so after a year she was still really struggling and someone said to her you you just you guys just need to get over it 
Yeah. <laughs> like, are you, are you kidding me? Like that, that's, it's unfathomable. So I, I so appreciate people like you talking about this and mm-hmm. talking about trauma as a very real thing and that we, you need the spiritual input, but you also need counselors and you also need people to walk you through these other very real things that are happening. You really do. And I feel like when someone says you just need to get over it, they're speaking from a place of inexperience. Really, that's them saying it's time for me to move on. I'd like to move on. Can you, can you pack this thing up and put it away so we can still be friends? Because I'm uncomfortable with your grief. Right. Because I don't want to do this anymore. And I miss who you were. Oh, wow. And Jason, one of the things that was true of me, my parents uh, walked this journey very closely to me and they talked about how um, what happened to me was very similar to a traumatic brain injury that from the outside, I looked like the same person, but everything inside my brain had been rewired and I processed everything differently. I used to be an off the charts extrovert. Suddenly I was this agoraphobic introvert who needed so much space and so much margin. And it was weeks before I could go to the grocery store without incident. Um, there, it was just every, I filtered everything differently. Yeah. So let's talk about some of that. I want to talk about how, uh, first, how you walked your boys through it. How old were they when Rob died? Oh, they were so little. Tucker was five and Tyler was three. And they processed it very differently from one another. Um, Tucker was, as I said, he was five years old. He was approaching kindergarten. He's my firstborn son and he thrives with responsibility. Hmm. And he felt a sense of, I have got to become independent. I have got to learn how to do all the things. And I need to learn how now, because I've lost one parent. I could lose the other one just as fast. And I have to be ready to care for myself and to care for my brother. And so I will do it. And it became my full-time job to help Tucker stay the age that he is. Um, For the last 10 years, that has been a recurring theme for Tucker and me. Buddy, this is not yours to carry. This is not your job. You don't have to worry about this. Wow. So that was how he and I worked through it together was to help him. Um, We would have to look. One of the things Tucker and I have learned to do together is to look past what he's afraid of to say, okay, because I can't promise him. I can't make promises that, that he won't know grief again. I can't promise him that he's made it through the woods and the worst is behind him. I can't. And that's not helpful to say that to someone. So instead, what we say is, well, what is the thing that you're afraid of? Okay. Let's imagine if that happens, what will we do next? Let's look past that fear. Let's just look, lean right into this and say, here's the thing that I'm so afraid of. Okay, then what if that happened? What would be our plan? Let's put our plan together. And for a long time, that was, buddy, um, I know you're really afraid to go to sleep tonight because you're afraid that something's going to happen to mommy. Okay, let's talk about what would happen. Who would take care of Tucker if mommy dies? And then who? And then who? And then who? So that we could build a secure mattress thick enough for him to sleep on, to be like, I have a plan and a plan and a plan and a plan. My younger son, Tyler, was three years old when he lost his dad. And Tyler manifested and carried his grief by not changing out of his pajamas. And he wore his Thomas the Tank Engine sleeper jammies 
day in and day out. And my therapist said, and you're going to let him. Because when you're three years old, there's nothing you're in charge of. There's nothing you get to speak into. He doesn't get to decide what he's having for lunch. He doesn't get to decide when he's having lunch. He is brand new potty trained. He doesn't get to decide when he's going to the bathroom. He doesn't get to make decisions. The bottom has fallen out of his world as well. And the way he's navigating this is by deciding what he's wearing. So we're going to let him wear his jammies as long as he wants. And he wore them for weeks and weeks and weeks. And he would let me wash them only to put them right back on again. Wow. So I helped my sons through it by promising that I would tell the truth um, and give them the answers that I had at the time. And that those were very uh, child safe answers when they were so little, when they were five and three. And one of the things that I've learned about childhood trauma is that you revisit it again and again and again as they enter new life stages. And as they learn more about life, they have more questions about death. And so there have been oftentimes that, that they have come to me and said, we need to talk about this again. I need to figure this thing out again. My sons are approaching 15 and 13 now. And um, so they're old enough now to hold all of the pieces to understand the diagnosis and the timing and what it was like. I remember the day that my son said, I need to know, I need to know what color he was when he died. I need you to tell me what that looked like. And okay, we can talk about that. It it was, uh, let's talk about that because these are your questions and he was your dad and you get to hold all the pieces that are yours. So I equipped them to be able to tell this story for themselves because it's theirs too. In August of 2012, you blogged this post called Feel How You Feel. I'm going to read this. It's it's short. Uh, Tuck woke in the middle of the night crying and crying. This doesn't happen to us as often anymore. What's wrong, buddy? I stood next to his bed, reaching my arm over the top bunk rail to rub his back. I don't know. I just don't know why I'm crying. And then, Mommy, why don't you cry for Daddy anymore? Oh, sweet boy, I think I know why you're crying, and I think I might not have words to explain it either. I still do sometimes, Tuck. I cry when I'm sad, but I'm not always sad. It's okay if you want to cry, and it's okay if you don't. You can feel however you feel, buddy. Just feel how you feel, my love. It's all I've learned how to do. Wow. Yeah, instantly I'm right back there with that top bunk and my my little boy of helping him to know how he felt and to let himself feel whatever that was, even if he couldn't name why he felt it. I feel like that's the greatest gift you can give to anyone in the season of grief. And I had, um, again, an expert in my life who said, you know what, if you feel like laughing, if laughter has shown up today, pull up a chair and let her have a seat at the table. And if other people are saying to you, Trisha, I can't believe you're laughing right now. Like, it just seems like you should be devastated. Feel free to say to them, you know what, I'm taking the day off. I'm taking the day off from sadness. I needed, I needed a break. So I'm sure I'll feel that way again today. I'm taking the day off and to let my sons, there was, I mean, the flip side of that was another, a different time that, um, I was feeling very heavy with memory and feeling like, oh, I need to create this space for my sons to be able to grieve and to remember because they're starting to forget. And I put together this like 
I feel like it was a slideshow or maybe it was the, I mean, it was just something, some kind of photo montage, photo montage that I wanted them to see to remember their dad. And so I brought them together. Guys, let's look, let's watch, let's remember together. And I was just in this headspace of really feeling the feels that day. And the same son Tucker took my face in his and he said, mommy, he, forehead to forehead, he just brought my, my face right up to his little face. And he said, I'm just not sad today. <laughs> and I thought, oh. Hal, feel how you feel. Yeah. I'm trying to make you enter this space with me because I'm feeling it. So feel how I feel right now. And he just, I love that he had the, the self-awareness to be like, this is what you need. It's not what I need today. Right. That's not what I right. need, mom. I'm just not feeling it right now. Okay, wow. good. good for you. In your own journey, then you didn't do it alone. You talked, uh, you've already mentioned uh, therapy and, and pastoral care. Uh, and your families, you had, you had a good support system. And the the, the thing uh, that stuck out to me was your group of girlfriends that came over and just wouldn't leave you alone in the best possible way. Um, you you called on the, the Wednesdays or the Tuesdays? The Tuesdays. The Tuesdays who meet on Wednesdays. That's right. <laughs> That's right. We started out on Tuesday nights and they, uh, they said, listen, Trish, we understand that you need to be in the house and that you can't come out, and, uh, but we need to be where you are. And so we're going to come to you. They came every Tuesday night and they brought coffee and they brought dessert and they, they stayed with me and sometimes put me to bed when they outlasted me. Um, and they kept me above the waves for sure. Every, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you, in, your, in your book, you, you go, and this is your first book, When Life Comes Back. Um, you have the section where you describe each one of them and uh, it, it's really fantastic. And it, the thing that really got me though, was the end um, of your descriptions here. Um, so I'm reading now from page 61. You say, to look at a picture of us around my dining table, you would likely believe we're a group of easygoing women chatting, with, uh, chatting and laughing with ease, caring only about silly things like hair color and lip gloss and cup size. But for the women at this table, the cares have been deep, shattering, and all-encompassing. One husband died, one husband left. Two babies died, and a, a baby boy lived for 21 days, and his little sister lived for 54 days. The Tuesdays wrapped those babies in a lifetime of love. There has been divorce, bankruptcy, unemployment, epilepsy, chronic health concerns, sensory integration disorders, learning disabilities, brain lesions, breast lumps, the sudden death of a parent, the list continues. We don't carry a light load, but we carry it together. And as I read that, I thought, now you wrote this book all these years ago, and I'm sure that list has continued. Mm -hmm. And I, I, it just, it, it, it made me, when I read that, I, I just thought, wow, like that's heavy. That's heavy because I want the list to stop in our lives, you know, yeah. I want, I want it to, to get to a place where like, you don't have to walk through any of this, but it, so much of that and that desire and that expectation, especially for, for followers of Jesus, we have this thing sometimes that says, no, we, we shouldn't have to deal with this stuff. Like, 
oh no, like people shouldn't die. Like, no, we, we pray and God protects us and all of this stuff, but it's sheer denial that we live in this broken world. And it's denial that we're going to have to feel any of it. Mm -hmm. But the fact is we all have those lists. And when we're gathered together, our lists compound and they're going to grow. And so the expect, our expectations that need to change from bad things won't happen to uh, we're going to carry our hard things together. Absolutely true. And the beauty of that, you're exactly right. The list has grown. Um, and that circle of Tuesdays is the truest sense of community that I've ever known in my life. Um, because stand that the, the birth of one child might mean heartache for another mom in the circle, you know? And, and so just to allow that dance, to allow each other to feel how we feel, um, and to say, you know what, because things started to shift where um, one crisis would end as another one would begin and we would kind of trade roles and, and trade dance steps. And you know what, I can carry this now. I couldn't carry this before. And it gave me a new understanding, Jason, of the story of the man on the mat whose friends carry him to Jesus. Um, because I had this awareness sometimes of, gosh, I, I had this awareness of the perspective of the man on the mat, because that can be the most humbling place to be. When you look up, I thought of him watching his friends carry him. And they were probably hot and they were sweaty and they were out of breath and maybe they were shifting hands because their hands were starting to blister. And he thought, I'm, I'm so sorry, I'm so heavy right now, mm. but I can't fix it. And I have to let you do this for me. And sometimes it's easier to be the one carrying than to be the one on the mat. Because at least if you're carrying, you know what to do with your hands. But if you're just laying there, it just feels like, I'm sorry, I can't fix it. I'm sorry, I'm so heavy. I'm sorry, you're so tired. I'm sorry, thanks for loving me. But then when you're on the other side, you know the joy of even being able to do that. I mean, the, you know, it's full of heartache, but when you love somebody, you help to carry them. That's right. That's right. Community was a big part of your healing. Writing was also a big part of your healing. Now, I, I was just telling Trisha before we started here that I was scrolling through the pages and pages of her blog posts because she didn't have a timeline. So I just went older entries, older entries, older entries. Do you know how many blog posts that you've published? Uh, it's in the tens of thousands. I, I don't know, but it's a lot. In the tens of thousands. That <laughs> explains it. I was like, oh my goodness. Um, you started, now the earliest one that I could find was uh, just about a year after Rob had passed, but it seemed to me that you had started before then. Is that right? Yeah. So actually I started when my life was very much intact. Um, I started when the boys were two and almost one. And so that's when we were just like the suburban minivan family with the dog and, and the two kids and the life that was just fascinating and fun. And I 
um, had been a teacher before my kids were born. And then I started blogging um, when I became a stay-at-home mom because I was somehow slightly dissatisfied with this life that I had created for myself. And uh, like I said, I had been an off-the-charts extrovert. And all of a sudden, I was living this scheduled life of routines and board books and goldfish crackers and a lot of diapers. And I don't feel like there's any space for me to think of other things. I, I remember feeling like I want to think about smart things. I remember one of my, there's a blog post about this of me saying to my toddler in the high chair, baby, did you know that mommy is smart? Because, <laughs> <laughs> because in that moment, I just didn't feel like I was using any of the skills, gifts, or abilities that were interesting to me. And of course that's not true, Right. but it is often the heart cry of stay-at-home parents who are like, how long does this last? And right. so I started blogging because the one thing that happened every day is that my kids took a nap. And so as they napped, I could write. And my blog then was called Teaching Talk and Tie. And I blogged about the many somethings on my mind. And I had maybe 30, 40, 50 readers, you know, aunts and uncles right. and college roommates. And um, I just wrote about whatever whatever was interesting to me then. So then when I hit this wall and the bottom fell out and Rob died, um, that was the only thing that felt to stay the same to me from the day before he died to the day after was that I still had a laptop and I still could write. Hmm. And I remember that my first blog post was probably on Christmas Eve. Maybe it was the actual on the 23rd on the day that he died, but I, I posted a picture of him. And I wrote, uh, my husband died this morning and there are no words for an ache this deep. Hmm. And he had been alive the day before and we had been making our Christmas lasagna dish. I mean, he had been very much there and he was very suddenly gone. And someone shared my blog on Twitter, someone who has a very vast following. And I don't know who this person is, but they said, uh, it's two days before Christmas. Her husband just died. Let's pray for this woman. And he shared it and it went viral. Um, and I didn't know that at the time because I was not, I wasn't blogging for platform. Right. I wasn't creating a readership. Um, I was just trying to stay alive and reading and writing are my inhale and my exhale. And that was the thing that I could keep doing. And so I kept doing it. And Jason, what happened is there were three different tribes of people who came to me and started following my stuff. Um, the first tribe was young wives who were saying, you're living my nightmare. You're living my greatest fear. You're living what I'm most afraid of. I, I wanna read this and I wanna see how you survive this because if you can survive this, then, then I will know that I have a plan. I don't know what I would do without my husband. So I wanna watch, I wanna get close to this fire without getting burned. I wanna come right to the edge of your cliff without falling over. Show me how you're doing this. The second were um, people who said, I didn't lose a child or I didn't lose a husband, but I lost a child or uh, he didn't die, but he left or we got a diagnosis or we, ha we have lost our income or we've lost our home or we've lost a job or we've lost a dream. Um, and they said, what you're writing about loss is, is the same. There's like this scarlet 
letter, the scarlet rope that is woven throughout what you're saying and what I'm feeling. And Jason, that's kind of what you experienced when, when, when I found your work and you found mine of like, wow, our stories of grief are very different and yet somehow very the same. Um, and so there were, there was this tribe of people that found my writing in, in their sense of darkness. And they said, you're, you're shining a flashlight in the cave and showing me where to walk next. Um, and the third group of people were pastors and therapists and counselors who said, uh, Trisha, no one writes in it. Everyone writes after it. They wait until after and they tell us what they've learned. You're inviting us into your dinner table to have a seat at your dinner table with your preschoolers who, who have questions. You're inviting us to the bathroom floor or the floor of your closet after you've put your children to bed and you're really lamenting in the truest way and you're showing us how, what it feels like after dark and I can read where you are and what you're experiencing and that allows me a path into their darkness into the darkness of their clients who couldn't give words to it like you could that's wow so it really was a privileged sacred space that I took very seriously honestly though Jason I wasn't doing it for anybody but me and right. the fact that the Lord took that and multiplied it, um, I think often of, of the, the story of the loaves and fishes and um, of the little boy's lunch and who packed his lunch that day. Uh, it was his mom, likely. And she wasn't planning to feed 5,000 people that day. She wanted to make sure that her son had enough to get through the day. Mm. And I was writing uh, to get through the day. And the Lord took those loaves and fishes and said, I have some people who are hungry. I need to, yeah. I want to share this with them too. Man, that's amazing. I, I, I was thinking how ironic this is then that uh, somebody told you during this time that you shouldn't write, that <gasps> you should just hold off, just wait until you can look back on it and write. And you found that was absolutely the worst advice you could, someone could possibly give you. Like maybe that'd be good for somebody else, but for you, it was a way to work through your darkness. So in addition to helping other people, you, so you're writing and other people are being helped. I think that's fascinating, by the way, about the therapists, especially. Mm -hmm. um, but what is it, what did that do for you? How did writing help you? My writing gave me um, space to feel how I felt. And it gave me space to tell the truth and to figure out what my emotions were. Another thing that it did for me is to, uh, it documented a season that is now erased from my memory. Wow. I don't have that. Those memories are erased. When you read to me that uh, blog piece of me talking to my son during the night, I don't have that memory anymore. You gave it back to me. But I don't, I, I didn't, I couldn't have produced it for you right here. Right. And you and I have a colleague at NavPress named Leslie Leland Fields, and she has just released a book called Your Story Matters. And one of the things that she's talked about in this book, and she's encouraging people right now, um, is what you're living right now matters. Write down something about this day, because you're living a story right now that is unfolding before you today. Write something down about it today because your story matters. And when I look back at the writing that I did, especially in those early seasons, 
Yes, it gave me space to feel, but also it documented this sacred space that was so fleeting and it felt like it was lasting forever, but I'm not in it anymore. And I couldn't write about that now. What would you say to people who, who aren't natural writers and who would think, well, I don't know, maybe that works for you because you're this great writer, but what about me? You don't have to be a published author in order to access your emotions on the page. And I feel like writing actually gives us the space. I feel like it's the manifestation of the verse, be still and know, because you cannot be active and be writing. You have to sit still. You have to sit still and be present in this moment. And anytime that you sit down and you're still and you engage in the discipline of writing, at the end, you will know something. You will know something about who you are, how you feel, who God is, where he is in your story, what he's teaching you every single time. Hey, you guys, I hope you're enjoying the interview. I just want to push pause really quickly to tell you about my book, Aching Joy, Following God Through the Land of Unanswered Prayer. It's a really personal book for me because it chronicles my own journey of hope in the midst of pain. It's a story about the unrealistic expectations I had when my son Jack was born and how his subsequent autism diagnosis and his regression destroyed those expectations. It's a story of grief and pain, but ultimately the rediscovery of hope and joy. This isn't a book just for special needs parents, but really it's for anyone who is walking through a season of disappointment with God or disappointment with life. You don't have to wait until it's all over to breathe again. There's joy to be had right in the midst of the aching. So hop on over to Amazon or Audible, pick up a copy of Aching Joy, Following God to the Land of Unanswered Prayer. It did win the Cascade Award last year for Best Memoir, and my mom really likes it too, so there's that. Okay, let's get back to the interview. I want to read uh, a portion of a poem you wrote, Um, and this was, um, well, this was about dealing with Rob's ashes. Mm. There is no grave to visit, no tombstone to read. He said, scatter them over the Rocky Mountains. He actually felt a personal possession of this natural landmark. I haven't scattered them yet. That process will involve more than just me. His ashes belong to more than just me. For now, I have them. I want to touch them. I want to hold them in my hands, let them slip through my fingers, his dust. To know how they feel, to know what they leave behind, to hold what was once mine. To say all over again, this does not disgust me. I love you as I hold these ashes. You did finally take his ashes to the mountains. I did. Can you tell me about that? I can. I remember um, being so surprised by what the actual, they call them cremains. Um, and it's kind of a, a combination of remains and, and cremation, the cremains. Um, and I remember being so surprised by what it felt like because they just always called them the ashes, but they're not ashes, Jason. They're like sand. Yeah. And it's like a bone and teeth. Like it's this ground up sense of humanity. And I remember thinking, like just feeling so um, honored. It was unspeakably sacred Mm. to literally hold his dust in my hands. 
um, felt so, it felt, if you haven't had that privilege, it sounds morbid and it sounds gross and it sounds like Halloween, but um, it's not, it's not, it's it's sacred space. And I felt like it was our wedding vows incarnate. Yeah. Um, And so when I chose to get in the car one day and uh, drive up the mountain and scatter his ashes around a lake that he loves, it was a beautiful time and it did bring me a sense of closure. Uh, and I remember um, holding them in my hands and, and scattering them in the sand and then, you know, kind of like tossing them in the air and letting them be on my fingertips and um, just really experiencing, experiencing this um, as, as one more farewell, one more gift with this man. Um, and then I got in the car and I had a different spirit about me, a different sense of closure. And I turned on the music and I rolled down the window right before I drove away. And I, and I thanked him and I said, it's been good. And now I have to live. And I rolled up the window and, and I, it was, there was closure. There was a sense in that moment of it's, I will carry him in my heart and this, this death um, will not always bleed. It will be a scar. And it certainly has become something that is part of the landscape of my life. It's no longer a bleeding wound. Hmm. But it's now something that's part of the big picture. Wow. Wow. Um, one of the things I love about following your page um, is you, you the stories of your sons, particularly? They're they're just hilarious. You just, <laughs> like I love so often. I love the 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 post when you end up. And I, you've, I, I've seen this. You do this a couple of times when you say, "I live in a frat house." I do. I, live in a frat house. <laughs> I do. <laughs> humor humor has been a really important part. It seems I don't want to put words in your mouth, but a really important part of your journey and getting through it. And even there, there was a moment of of humor right on the 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 morning that that you lost Rob, and I I actually have wondered like did that sort of set a tone of like you know what this cannot be all sadness there it, we are going to have to to be able to find those things and laugh at them I wonder if you if you can tell us that story and and talk a little bit about how humor has has helped you along the way yes so um, the story that you're referring to is um, on the day that Rob died. Um, they have a team of people who come around you when you call 911 and when there's an emergency. And of course, first your call goes to the dispatcher and then they decide, well, we probably need to send um, police and firemen and paramedics in order to figure out exactly what this trauma entails. And then from there, that team of people arrives and then they figure out what support they need from there. Which for our situation involved uh, the coroner who would need to come and take the body. Um, but also what they call the victim's advocate. And the victim's advocate is the person who um, wants the paramedics and the firemen and the police officers leave the scene. They don't want to leave the victim, meaning me, they don't want to leave that person unattended. Um, So they send this person who's going to kind of stand in the gap and make sure that she's okay, make sure that she's not left alone, make sure that she's not... um, 
you know, going to end up killing herself as a result of this trauma because people didn't have a safety net in place. Now, so we had a victim's assistant who, who indeed joined us that day. Now, some people tragically do not have the safety net that I had beneath me that day. And people came in droves to my home, um, family and friends and friends of mine and friends of Rob's and friends of my parents and friends of his parents and certainly his family. And my house was just filled with love and grace and lasagna. Um, there was a lot of all of that, but there was also this victim's assistant who, a victim's advocate, who didn't know what to do with me. And so inadvertently, she did the wrong thing over and over and over again. In retrospect, I can see that she couldn't let there be silence. She would speak into the silence. So if you are a victim's advocate, or if you are a person who, um, if you may find yourself in a space where people are feeling emotions and you're like, I don't even know what to say. Um, here's what I want you to know. You don't have to say anything. Simply being present is enough because she needed to fill the gap. And here's what that looked like, Jason. She kind of hovered around me that day, just kind of like right behind my shoulder. She was just forever like right there. I think she wanted to be available, but she would say things like, she would appear over my shoulder and she would say, do you have any pets? Do, uh, yes, I, I remember thinking like, I didn't know what pronoun to use and I didn't know what verb to use. Do I, I have a dog, we have a dog, he had a dog. Is it present tense? Is it past tense? Who does the dog belong to? Like, I didn't know how to answer these questions, right? And so, but she, she said, because pets grieve too, you know. And um, when my brother-in-law died, the cat climbed into his bed and died between the sheets the next day. I don't know what to do with that information. I don't know what to do with that information right now. That's, oh my gosh, it's, 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 it's so painful. Oh, it was so painful. And she said at one point, she, I, I said, okay. And another time she said, have you thought of what you'd like to do with his thumbprint? No, I, 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 I don't know what I'm doing with any of this. And she said, they have wonderful technology now that you can have his thumbprint made into a stamp that maybe it's something that you wear like on a charm around your neck. That's something for you to really consider. Well, I thought do, right now, like, I know he wants to be cremated. Do I need to go and get, like, do we have to get his thumbprint right now before, the, before his body leaves the house? Should I go get my scrapbook materials? Like, do I need to be doing this right? No, I didn't need to be doing it right now. And she didn't need to be saying those things right then. My dad walked into the kitchen at one point and she said, hey, how about those Broncos? And he looked at her like, what? And she said, Broncos, they're having a season, right? And I said, dad, she's talking about your sweatshirt. And he, when he had gotten the call from me that morning and had raced over, he had gotten out of bed and thrown on the first things that he could reach. And it was uh, the Bronco sweatshirt and, and a hat. And he didn't know what he was wearing and he didn't care and it didn't matter. And she didn't need to make small talk, but she, she needed to because she was uncomfortable with us. And my mom said to her at one point, hey, um, just so you know, we are believers and we know where he is. And we don't necessarily know how we're going to get through the next couple of weeks, but we know 
that he's okay and we're going to be okay. And she essentially, and, and you know what the woman said, Jason? She said, oh, I'm good. I'm, I'm so glad that makes it so much easier on me. <laughs> good, because that's why we're here is to make things easier for you. And so my mom was essentially trying to like usher her out the door, like give her an escape. Like, hey, we've got this. We are okay with the space that we're in. And eventually she took the cue. Um, I don't remember how she left, if anyone actually had to walk her out the door or if she just chose to be discreet and go. But I remember her being gone. And we were sitting in the kitchen and the, the room was just filled with people. And I said, I knew in that moment, I, I said to them, I just want you guys to know that I like all of you so much more than that woman who just left. <laughs> And as you're laughing right now, it did allow this rupture of the grief and it allowed us to laugh in that space. And I knew though, that I had to set the tone for that. I knew nobody else is gonna let there be laughter in this space today until I do. Just like his shoes that were at the bottom of the stairs that people were walking around that day as they were coming into my home his he had kicked off his shoes the night before before he went upstairs and everybody was walking around those shoes knowing nobody can be the first to move the shoes trisha has to move the shoes mm. if the shoes will be moved she has to be the one to say it's time and in the same way people said to me they were all thinking if someone's going to laugh today trisha has to be the one to say it's time yeah and i knew I mean, God bless the cardigan lady. She didn't mean to be funny, but she gave us a lot of things to laugh about that day. And one of the things that I know, Jason, is that laughter and tears are sisters who hold hands and they walk together and joy and sorrow are two sides of the same coin. And you can feel them both at the same time. And sometimes they are exactly the cure for each other. Yeah. Man, that that's so obviously that that's that's a message I believe very strongly in. I I feel like when when we isolate them into two sort of separate islands, we, when we think, okay, well, one day I'll be able to laugh again, yeah. uh, we end up. I, I just think we end up missing so many things. I, it just makes me think of of your son saying, "I'm not sad right now." Like, <laughs> right, I'm just right sad now. today. Exactly. Another one of the things that I leaned into was the fact that I had this whole brand of widow humor that only I could tap into. There were jokes right. that only I could tell. Even to this day, there are things that I can say about, well, that was, that's, you know, something about that. Well, I can't even say it right now because it's not funny and out of context. But if I were to toss something around about um, a widow who needs to take her medication or a discount for the dead husband, or, you know, there are things that, that are macabre and very dark that if someone else said it, it's completely inappropriate. But right. for me to say it, I have access to this line of comedy. I have access to this line of humor that is only funny because I know how terrible it is. I've actually lived it. I actually know the color of death on a person's skin. So I can talk about that now because I'm not making light of it out of not knowing. I'm making right. light of it because I've lived it. And, and you're not scared of it. I'm not scared of it. And by me being comfortable with it, I give other people the permission to exhale. We don't have to dance around this. 
Let's just right. let it be part of what we're talking about right now. One of the parts, both times that I, I've read this, that I, I don't know, there's something about this exchange that just touches something in me. And to me, I, I think it, it sort of leads into this whole different chapter of your life. And this was actually still early on um, of your first book here. Uh, so I'm just going to read this page. Okay. okay? Like it's, it's like, you keep reading all of your stuff here. <laughs> um, welcome to Starbucks, ma'am. What can we get started for you? I stared blankly at the menu. The smallest decisions seemed to be the most overwhelming. Um, a salted caramel mocha, please, decaf? You bet, ma'am, coming right up. We exchanged a few common pleasantries. And then I said, could I tell you something that will seem intensely vulnerable, and yet I need to say it? His hands were still, and he looked intently at me. Yes, ma'am, of course. I'm a writer. I come here often to write. I sit at the corner table. Perhaps you've seen me? He smiled and nodded. Oh, yes, yes, ma'am. I lost my husband quite suddenly, very tragically, a few days before Christmas. This seems to be the only place I can come on my own. This Starbucks. I've written here before, and I'll write here again. In fact, I'm here today to write. I wanted you to know I can do that here. Thank you. His face softened. You're welcome, ma'am. It's an honor to have you. And may we buy your drink today? Yes, please. My husband would love that. I love that exchange so much. My wife and I just both lost it when we were reading. We kept we kept almost throwing your book. It's a stupid book. But every time we would start, every time you would you would get us like that. And um, the th the the thing I love besides the exchanges is what this sort of set in motion. Of course, it was already set in motion because you were going there to write, but you went there for a long season to write and, and uh, very very regular, almost daily. Yeah. Um, and eventually you decided to just put the apron on and um, you, you started working there. I did. And that went on. And a, a, a while into that, there was a fella who, who got in line and who came in and, it's, and, and started flirting with you. And things just happened. Can you tell us about the day you met Peter? Yes, I love that story. So yes, you are right. After all of these years of it being my sanctuary and my writing space, um, I decided to put on the green apron and join them in their choreography behind the counter of making lattes. And uh, I took one evening shift, one in all the time that I worked at Starbucks. And uh, this man came in one evening and I poured his coffee and he thought I was cute. And he came back the next day and he came back the next day and he kept coming back. And uh, one day he said, you know, sometime maybe you could join me on this side of the counter. And I thought, oh my gosh, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. And I remember thinking and feeling so afraid um, because I had dated very, very minimally um, because I just kept saying, I, I would rather do this alone than do it wrong. That was my mantra. Um, the boys had already been so hurt and life had been so hard on us that I just could not risk um, introducing them to someone who would further break our hearts. And so just the simple question of this man saying to me, you know, maybe, maybe sometime you could join me on this side of the counter. It took a while. It took a while for me to agree. So he just kept coming back for more coffee. And one day I did join him on, on his side of the counter for a cup of coffee at the end of my shift. And we started a conversation that we've now been in for four and a half years. Um, and Peter, his name is Peter. He is 
wonderful. He is my favorite miracle. And uh, several months after that first time that I poured his cup of coffee, Peter, um, he came back day after day after day, finally talked me out of the Starbucks and into a dinner date. And um, he then came to Starbucks one day and he said, I, I came here long ago for a cup of coffee and I'm here today to ask for my wife. And he got down on one knee and proposed to me right there as I was taking orders behind the counter. And uh, I, of course, said yes, a thousand times yes, a million times yes. And he has stepped into this hot mess of raising these young men with me. Peter has two grown kids of his own, and he has a great perspective um, on the things that matter and the things that really don't um, when, you're, when you're dealing with raising kids. And he came to me and, and said to them, said to my sons, early on, guys, I like your mom. Like, like, I mean, I like, like your mom. And how would you feel about that if I wanted to date your mom? And Tucker, who was 10 at the time, said, okay, I've been waiting for this moment and I have four rules for you. And Peter said, okay, what are they? And he said, well, the first one is you, you have to love God. And that has to be important to you. The second one is you have to love my mom and you have to take care of her. And the third one is uh, you have to love us too because we're a package deal and we come with her. And the fourth one is, will you throw a football with me? And Peter oh said, and Peter said, I'm, I'm four for four, pal. I can do all of those things. And Tucker said, great, then you can have her. And that was the that was the beginning of our love story. We've been married for almost four years now. Um, and he is exactly what each one of us needed. Peter was definitely not our savior um, because no person is ever designed to be anyone else's savior. But the work of the Holy Spirit in my life made space where Peter could live. What we're hoping to do with this particular podcast is to speak to people who are in all different phases of, of aching um, and to show the hope of redemption. You're living a redemption story right now. It's a beautiful redemption story. What do you say to a person who's in the thick of it and feels like they're never going to see the light of day, like real, the sun ever again? What do you say to them? My heart aches for that person because I know that sense of hopelessness. And I have many things that I want to say. The first one is, all you have to do is the next thing. That is all you have to do. And sometimes the next thing is to pour yourself a glass of water. Sometimes the next thing is to let yourself take a nap. Sometimes the next thing is to do a load of laundry or to make lunch. You do not have to take one single step out of this moment. Because when we do that, that's when fear creeps in. And um, we are not invited to fear. There isn't grace in fear, actually. Jesus said, I am, and I'm here right now. I'm in this moment with you. When we step out of this moment, we step into a moment where he is not yet. And so all you have to do is this next thing. I remember thinking, how am I going to teach these boys to drive? How am I going to teach them to shave? How am I going to teach them the things that they have to learn from a dad? You know what? I didn't have to worry about that then. And I needed to simply stay in the moment and let my son wear his jammies and let my other son cry at night 
and to be in that space with them and to hold it with them to simply do the next thing. Springtime comes every single year, but it never comes on one day. It doesn't come on the same day every year and it doesn't come and arrive to stay with one great morning that we all wake up and the, the, the crocuses have bloomed and the tulips are there and everything is okay now, everything is back. Spring comes, but we don't know when. And sometimes it comes and we get a couple sunny days and then we get a snowstorm again, especially here in Denver. April is our snowiest month and I think that is just a cruel act of nature that we get the most snow when nobody's excited about it anymore. And that's how it can feel when you're starting to heal again. Gosh, I thought we were in a good place. I thought that it was gonna, I thought, it, I thought we were headed in the right direction. How is it snowing again? How do I feel like it's winter again? It will be, it will be winter again. And you're gonna get the snowstorms that, that make you feel like you'll never get to leave your house again. But springtime comes and it comes and it comes gradually but the sun shines again and it shows up. We just have to trust in the one who brings the sunshine. Trisha Lott Williford, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a wonderful conversation. If you want to hear more from Trisha, uh, you can go to her blog, trishalottwilliford.com. You can pick up her, her brand new book on Amazon or wherever books are sold. It's called Just You Wait. And the book we've been reading from today is called and life comes back thank you so much for being with us today if you've enjoyed the podcast please go leave a review on amazon for us and tell your friends i am jason haig and this is the aching joy podcast thanks so much